Hi everyone, you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, where we believe in a world in which Singaporeans are proud of our rich and diverse food culture and play an active role in keeping our food heritage alive. I'm your host, Pamelia Chia, and today I'm joined by Christy Chua and Tanaik, who is the founder and editorial director, as well as editor-in-chief of The Slow Press. The Slow Press is an independent food magazine fixated on the rich stories behind what we eat and through long-form journalism, design, illustration, photography and videography, the magazine seeks to bring Singapore's vibrant food heritage to the foreground in an introspective yet quirky and fun way. In this conversation, they share about their thoughts on producing a print magazine in an increasingly digitalized world, as well as how we can potentially get young Singaporeans interested in heritage food. So I was flipping through your, your magazine and also checking out some of your online editions, right? And I realized that a lot of the stories revolve around local food or heritage food. Um, so what was that? process of deciding on the theme for your magazine like um, was it a very intentional process of curating the stories yeah uh, I think it's a very intentional process but also I think there are a few things because food magazines are something that uh, something that's quite common actually you know in terms of like the media landscape not just in Singapore right like from the US uh, from like big these countries with big media presence there are a lot of food magazines so if you wanted to do a food magazine, it has to be something that is different, right? And obviously, we're in Singapore. So uh, Singaporean food, what's happening in Singapore, local food, you know, what, what we term as heritage food, that's something that is right here. And of course, we want to write about that rather than try to write about something that honestly, we don't know much about. And there's, like, for example, there's only so much you can write, you can say about a culture and food that is not where you are, right? Uh, and if you have no experience with that. So, of course, uh, naturally, we will gravitate towards uh, food that's right here in Singapore. And I, I feel like even in like a country like Singapore, you know, it's quite small or whatever. I think there's more than enough to... You can write endlessly about it. You know, it's not it's not like something where, oh, you know, we're a, we're a small place. There's not much to write about. I feel like uh, it's really in a, an in, inexhaustible topic, you know, food and culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why we wanted to do that. Yeah. And what is the niche that the slow press is trying to fill? Uh, I mean, you talked about different food magazines, right? And I mean, locally, even in Singapore, we have quite a few local food magazines. So what is the slow press doing that these um, maybe bigger magazine companies don't do? I think it's a good thing that we are young people and we are not like directly involved in like the culinary scene. What I have observed before the slow press started is that most of the content is written by like people who have like food critic or food writing experience or they have worked as a chef, that's why they can launch their own like cookbooks. And you yourself also, like Wet Market the Table was one of the reasons why we started the slow press, because we were like super inspired by whatever you were doing. And I think because if you are in the field, then you will have that kind of perspective. But we are kind of from a media background, so we only have the media perspective, but we like food. So I think we want to be the middle ground between like what somebody of like higher authority is trying to like achieve. So we interview them or like we talk to them and summarize their thoughts. So that translates into something that maybe the general audience or younger audience can understand better. And I guess what we want to deliver is like food content in a fun and refreshing way. 
So that's also through like events and directly contacting some of our readers. Like we wanted to build like quite a strong community that can support us and we will support them as well. In terms of like exchanging food knowledge, sometimes we have people coming to our events and they bring along their own stash of food magazine collected from over the years or like, and they share with us and they're like, you don't have to return it to us. Like you can keep it for real. Then we are like so shocked by like how generous these people are. And I think we managed to reach out to quite a large age group. So some of the people who come are really like married and like some of the people who come are our friends. And we are genuinely quite like amazed by the people who turn up for our events or like engage with us because we learn so much from them and they are also as eager about food. I so my two cents. I also feel like for the slow press, we have a more a, a larger focus on long form food writing. So it's like more uh, cultural food, something that's a, that dives a little bit deeper. And of course, of course, there are like these kinds of features in like current food, like uh, bigger food magazines. But I think the distinguishing fa- the point is that uh, for us, is we try to present a less value based proposition when it comes to talking about food, right? Because uh, when we started out, <clears throat> at least I felt personally that a lot of the food writing, especially like the more commercial kinds, right? Uh, there's a huge focus on value, you know, like, uh, is this, is this food uh, worth it at X amount of dollars? You know, where, where can you like buy this food? But of course, we want to, like, for the slow press, uh, we want to go a little bit beyond that. That's not really what we are looking to do. Yeah. It's more about like the food, the history of the food rather than, yeah, how cheap it is or like how, how much value for money it is. Or is this like five stars, four stars? And I think a lot of the stories revolve around home cooking, right? Rather than restauranty kind of food. And I was very intrigued by that because I always feel that for young Singaporeans, home cooking is so redundant almost. Um, a lot of the younger people that I know, they don't cook because you live with your parents until you get married and that's when you move out, right? And then you start embarking on your own personal journey of learning how to cook. So how did you make this topic accessible and interesting to young people? I think personally, I feel the older I go, I want to keep my mom's recipes with me. Like I actually fear that one day I move out, I can't eat this as often anymore. And how am I going to recreate it? So I have been feeling that I should ask her more about food and tell her like, well, what do you add into this dish? Like, is it soy sauce, fish sauce? Yeah, how do you like cook these kind of vegetables? I will ask her these kind of questions. I think like in recent years, especially. Then I feel like home cooking is actually what the young people have been exposed to if they stay at home and eat, right? So even if they don't cook it, they have developed like a liking and their flavor profiles have been like developed from what they eat at home. And even if they are not like interested in cooking it, I think it still means a lot to them. That's why a lot of our writers and myself can write about like all these things that we grew up eating. And it might be very, very different from what the older generation has eaten, of course, because like times have changed. People don't eat like kampongs or like super huge families anymore. And people don't like go to their neighbors and borrow ingredients or maybe like share a meal at all, maybe today. So even if times have changed, like, Family cooking still remains, like, thankfully for our generation, it still remains something that we can look forward to at home. And we just want to continue preserving that. 
hopefully the next generation can continue to eat food that their parents cook at home as well. Uh, and yeah, for home cooking is definitely a huge portion of uh, what we do because yeah, the, f- the food at home, I think it really touches something in you. And I feel like for a lot of our younger readers, right, even if, yeah, like Chrissy said, even if they don't cook, of course they eat like, home-cooked food and they're familiar with that. So when we, when I feel like when we present stories like this in our magazine, right, someone who's curious about it and, you know, really likes the food might think, oh, like, uh, there's so much here that I see in myself, in my own situation, you know, maybe I should also start, you know, like, like Christy said, right, learning to cook uh, the stuff that I ate growing up if I want to keep eating it. Uh, and then, of course, like, even like in this home-cooked food, there's so much like food, culture, history, even your own personal family history is like a... Uh, I think it's very valuable, right? And I hope that if someone reads our stories like this, they will see that they are, maybe they're in a similar situation and then maybe that will ignite their interest in actually making the food. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear your perspective because um, I think on my second episode of this podcast, I was interviewing another young person and her name is Shiny Pua. I think you guys featured her on the Slow Press as well. And uh, something that she said was very amusing to me. So she said that, to her generation, um, they would consider something like Sun Kui, boomer food. So do you think that this is true from your perspective as another young person, that your generation actually has these um, labels attached to traditional food? Uh, yeah, honestly, I think, uh, obviously not everybody's the same, but there is definitely this uh, thing where you look at older food and you're like, oh, you know, I've never tried it. It's, you know, I've never tried like even uncooked kuih, right? It's like, oh, it's like boomer food. It's something that my parents ate is uncool, you know. Yeah, so I I feel like part of it is trying to reframe that, you know, where it's like, yeah, it has this history. It's like I'm not saying it's cool, lah. You know, I'm not trying to make it make it like cool or whatever, but it's more it's more about showcasing that, and then hopefully you will have an interest in it. But yeah, definitely there have been some things that are labeled boomer food. And I do have, I do know people that are only interested in things that are, you know, uh, shiny and new, like, oh, it's like pasta. Yeah. Not, not really much interest in traditional food, so to speak. Definitely, uh, you can see that. I think it's also about how the media and whatever we watch online kind of, cons- like, kind of shapes what we want to eat. Like, especially with like YouTube channels on like how to cook like tasty or like BuzzFeed videos, right? Then people will be like, oh, maybe this weekend I want to go eat burgers. I want to eat like handmade pasta, you know, that's like the hip thing now. And then like young people, they tend to like get their friends to do the same thing as them. So I guess that kind of like interest in like more Western-based food or like pastries comes from what we consume online as well. And then like whatever we eat, outside of that kind of like gets left behind like you won't maybe you won't like go with your friends to the hawker center as much as you go with them to like shopping malls yeah I feel like maybe people don't like specifically go and be like I want to eat bao for brunch on a Sunday Let, let's go eat like cha kui tiao like people are like oh let's go eat like brunch and scrambled eggs avocado toast like that's a very easy thing for people to say but I think people don't really think about like oh maybe let's get back to me for Sunday brunch yeah so along that same vein what what do you think is the overarching mission of the slow press I think we want to do things about food in terms of journalism design illustration and photography 
and it's always about bringing out the fun and without forgetting the amount of death and the whole understanding that can go behind food and it's not about like what the food is how much value it is like how much you're rated against five or like whether this is a must try food but it's more of like this thing exists in singapore i want to talk to you about it maybe you like it maybe you don't even bother finding out more about it but at least i tried to do it so we just want to be the people who start an active conversation about food and we want to keep it going as long as we can so you know i'm, I'm assuming both of you um study communication new communication or is it called communication studies communication studies yeah okay communication studies so how do you think that discipline really helps you in a, in achieving your mission I'm the only one from my team who comes from more of a journalism background. And then we had like this school alumni magazine thing. So when I first started Cisco Press, I kind of ran it based on my experience on like how the editorial and the creative team works over there. And I think like along the way, Melody, I, Lauren and some others, they also have like some professional experience in internships when they were like in agencies and the way like people work i guess workflow wise we kind of draw from our media backgrounds in like public relations or like advertising as well but editorial wise mostly i was the one who like set the timelines because because we need to like plan for like pictures to be in then we need to send out like calls for contributors and stuff i'm sure you're familiar and then there's always like this period in between where like people need to go and contact the newsmakers and some stories work, some stories don't work. And after that, we regroup and we see like, okay, this is the lineup for next volume. We don't really have a theme for the past four volumes. So we leave it up to the writers to like decide. And then after that, we go through the whole writing and the doing process individually. And then like there's the submission of drafts and the editing timeline, which is kind of similar to how any newsroom would work. But on a much longer and slower scale because we are the slow press and we take things easy. So I, I, I don't know about taking things easy, man. It's like four volumes in, in eight months, eh? uh, nine months. Lah. It's very fast paced. We, we have a lot of contributors that obviously come from a journalism background. You know, they have all these like skills and, in the, and discipline or whatever. But for me, for me personally, I, I have to say that I didn't, I didn't learn anything about journalism because I didn't take any of the, mo- the modules while I was doing communications. So everything I learned, right, I learned from Christy. I'm hey. just, I'm like a, like everything I know, everything I know about like, what I like about stories, like, I, I would say actually almost self-taught, like reading a lot of like, you know, long form food content or like just like long form content in general. And that's my personal interest, you know. So that's where my, my interest and knowledge of what I think is a good story comes from, actually. Yeah. You know, a lot of people say that print is dead. Um, and uh, especially for younger people, right? Everything is digital right now. So why decide to print um, your magazine? I know that you guys have a digital version on your website and you also do print. So why do print? Right. We wanted to do both because we wanted everyone to be able to read it. Some people aren't compelled to like pay like maybe 15 to $20 just to own a copy because they're not quite sure if it's their thing. So digital was a way for us to reach out to people who are still quite uncertain to like, should I like patronize this magazine? Maybe I can take a look and maybe they stay for like two pages or five pages, but at least they get to look at what's inside and we appreciate that quite a bit. So we wanted to do print because we wanted 
to retain an audience which was really interested in our stories. I think for long form, print really makes a difference. Because imagine you're scrolling through like 3,000 words on your phone, you already get bored halfway or like distracted by your notifications, right? Long form is quite hard to read on your phone. Even for like other media sites, I'm sure like they probably suffer from the same issues. Lah. And because for print, design is quite different as well. If you're posting it on a website, you probably just need to like include some photos in between, a cover image. You can't really design the spread to make it look like, oh, this is a magazine, this is two pieces of A4 paper, and I want this at this corner, this over here, and everything makes sense differently when it's put on paper. It's something that we have been struggling, trying to adapt to when we first started, because we didn't know things would turn out so differently when they're printed. Like, we need to take, take note of like the center, parting, and like making sure the words don't like cut into the images and stuff like that. It's very technical things that we learn along the way because we're also not from like publishing background. So that really was quite challenging for us. But I think like print culture wise, the indie print culture is still thriving in terms of like maybe magazines that publish like once a year. Well, I mean, Pinebean, Mina, and like other Singapore magazines, right? There's this small little circle of them who still go for like art. You mean like, you mean like seasonings also, right? Shout <laughs> <laughs> seasoning. Shout out, shout out seasonings. Yeah, so you guys are in the print zone as well. And I think we just do it because we want people to have something to keep, something to hatch and something to hold on to. So next time when like, if, like, everything gets lost and the internet breaks down, like, we still have still press at home <laughs> to read. The, yeah. the answer is that print is dying. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's dying in the same way that, like, radio died, right? I feel. Because it's, like, print is no longer the mass communication uh, medium of the day, right? Obviously, you have, like, so many different things. You have, like, TV, the internet, whatever. But there's, there's definitely still artistic potential in the magazine as a medium or like the print the print like book as a as like a object right so i feel like uh, that's a, that's a lot of what we like and that's why we decided to do print because we still want to have that keep that spirit alive uh. and yeah there's always there's like this like diy zine culture that uh, we take a lot of inspiration from yeah and definitely having it in print you know having object uh, like this is uh, all these like specifications about how you can uh, put a magazine onto paper that's a lot of what we are trying to do as well. Mm, fantastic. Um, one of the stories that I was very pleasantly surprised by is the one which features the Filipino community and the cuisine. Um, why did you feel like it was important to highlight this community and their food? You know, I mean, the Filipinos, even though they've been working and living in Singapore for so long, I feel that their food or their stories have not really made it into mainstream Singaporean food media. Yes. So... Why? So why that decision? Well, I think that it's a shame that they have not uh, so-called made it into mainstream food media. Uh, I mean, just like on a personal level, I I feel like Filipino food is very delicious. And of course, like the Philippines is a huge place, right? So all these places where you talk about like regional cuisine or whatever, applies to the Philippines as well. It's like a huge place. You only get like a sliver of it. So that's like the food part, right? And the culture or like the story or like the story that I covered, because yeah, I did, I did that piece. I feel like it's really important. Like back, I mean, this issue of uh, you know domestic, uh, like foreign domestic workers, all these like issues with uh, overworking or like 
food deprivation, uh, like slightly touched on in this piece. Uh, these things have been going on for a long time. They've they've seen some. Uh, I would say not, not spotlight. Uh, they've been covered. This these issues have been covered in the media fairly recently because of the good the good work of organizations like you know Home and, and things like that. And it, this was just like my a little way of me showing that story, you know, uh, through a food lens because. I feel like that's like a very joyful approach to food that they that I've seen personally, right? And I wanted to like showcase that and also yeah, lightly touch on some of the issues that uh, they face. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, so that I th- I felt I felt that was important. And of course, when you're talking about Singaporean food, I I feel like uh, it's an inclusive term, right? It's food that is in Singapore, so it doesn't have to be like oh you know batami, sakuitiao, or whatever. If they are living here and they're working here and they're eating here, right? Then I feel that's also a Singaporean story. But very unfortunately, part of the part of the Singaporean story of like Filipino food is that, uh, you know, foreign domestic workers are often not given access to food. So that was like part of why I wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think whatever I said about like people living in Singapore should be considered as a Singaporean story to tell. I think it's very important because I think. A lot of us grew up in a household with a domestic helper, whether it's from like Philippines or like Indonesia. I personally did not. So when I went over to Ike's house to like try the steak for my first time, it was quite cool because like I've never eaten like pig ears before. And I was like, wow, this texture is very interesting. And I got to see like how his domestic helper was like, and him were like working hand in hand to prepare the dish and like the camaraderie between each other, it's really very heartwarming and sweet. We have been going back to Ike's house for a few times after that and to see them like interact and like have fun about like cooking and like eating together. I think it's very precious and for a lot of households, there's always like this hierarchy between like the Filipino helpers and the employers, right? Like some of them don't really treat them very well and maybe they tell like the children to like not not be so close to them, like don't learn from them. I don't know, that's what I heard growing up uh, from like my relatives and stuff. Like the older generation can still be quite ruthless when it comes to like interacting with other communities in their household. I had to beg yeah. Christy to try the sissy. I was like it's it's like pig ear in the face. Also, and this- she was like, <laughs> but actually it's very Singaporean like you have things like Kway Chup right which is like, yeah exactly but actually I feel that a lot of um, the stalls nowadays they don't have those things like they just do the pork belly salsa and the egg so maybe you know that's why Gen Z's are less exposed to it um, but speaking from your own experience like what has gotten you into heritage food and, and you know understanding the value of of unearthing all these stories and understanding the cultural context. So in volume two, I tried something new for the first time and that was like making ngohyang with my family. And I know my grandmother has been making it like almost her whole life because I have been eating it but not exactly like interacting and like doing a hands-on activity of like making it with my aunts, right? So I've always eaten it and every Chinese New Year or any family gathering, it's always like on the table. And then the other stuff on the table are quite foreign to me. Like we have the intestine soup and we have like different roast meat and fried noodles and some fried tau kwa and century egg and random stir fried dishes every time. But I think as a child, like I was very picky 
So I would just go for like the fried noodles and like nuggets and fish cake that they were specifically fried for like the children, like me and my cousins, right? So I would like avoid everything else on the table. And then one day, I don't know why, maybe I just like felt a bit curious. Then I asked my mother like, or maybe I just got bored of like eating the same fried noodles every time. Ask mom like, can I have a bit of the chicken? And then she like got shocked. She's like, you eat chicken, and I think it started from there. I really wanted to know like the hard work that goes into all these dishes. So mohyang is something very central to my family, and it it became one of like my favorite stories to write lah. Like from one of your questions, because I went into the whole process, and then I saw that like, oh, actually this. There's like six people making mohyang at once, and then there's so many small details like peeling the water chestnuts and like making sure the onions and like the chives were like just the correct dimensions. Like it has to be like small, and like if not, you will taste it and it'll be a big chunk when it comes out fried, right? And how you roll it. If you don't roll it tight enough, then it will fall out when it's frying. And how long you fry it for, right? Because yeah, you don't want it to burn the hot oil and everything. And I think it's it's like so labor intensive, like so many other heritage dishes, and it's not something that you can actually like do like when you're working. Like it's not a fast lunch that you can conjure up for yourself. So I like how intentional this whole process is, bringing people together and usually like family members, and it's dedicated the entire weekend to it because you still need to go to the market in the morning and buy the pork belly, and then. Yeah, they said like the market uncle only recognizes my grandma, so she has to go and buy it and like go for his prices. So like, even she's like almost like eighty five or something now, but she's still the one that's going down to the market like in her neighborhood to get it for the entire family. And she makes up to like three hundred rolls pre COVID because she would visit a lot more of her friends and her cousins and give to like the entire family. Yeah. So I think that got me into more heritage cooking and also reading up about some of the foods that are local to Singapore. Yeah, I started off from Singapore noodles actually, being oh. exposed to the range of ingredients <laughs> and all the recipes on your website. Yeah, because it's very accessible, you know. Like for a young person, we really don't know where to start. And if we look into like all those family cookbooks from like nineteen nineties, like I'm sure every family has like those boomer cookbooks, you know. But there's not much like content and stories in those cookbooks. It's more of like, okay, today I want to cook fish head curry, so I will go to that specific book, get the recipe, cook it, and everyone's happy. Like, but no one actually thought about like, so where did fish head curry come from? Is it a Singaporean dish or like, how did people enjoy it in the past? And because of that curiosity, I think that's why. We wanted to cover a bit more of it in the Well, my interest in heritage food is uh because it's because it's delicious. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, it's like delicious. really, like uh, just no, no. Like as you get yeah, as you get older, you venture out your comfort zone. You start being a chicken nugget, a fried chicken nugget girl, right? And then you start like trying everything, and then you're like, oh, this is actually really, really good. Uh, something that my my parents eat that I don't eat. It's like, oh wow, it's actually very delicious. And from there, you want you def- at least for me, you want to find out more about it. You want to find out, uh, yeah, all these like different stories about the food. Yeah, and it's, and it's like so interesting and so fascinating to look into. So, so I guess that's where, that's where my curiosity developed, right? And then it just like took off from there. You feel like both of you are belonging to the minority Gen Z that are out there in Singapore? 
Yeah, maybe yeah, honestly. Yes. <laughs> because um, I have this brother who is uh, nine years younger than I am, right. so he's probably right. around your age. Um, and I have like really young cousins as well. And um, I think one of the reasons why I wrote Wet Market to Table the way I did or positioned Singapore noodles in the way that I did was because I realized um, how little they actually knew about heritage food and perhaps how uninterested they are. I feel that young people have always been said to be like very trans-led, you know, grew up on McDonald's, you know, very little anchoring to their own heritage. Um, and so I, I really felt the need on my part to make it hip and trendy and accessible, whether it is through the use of technology or through the use of um, art when I collaborate with people who create products. So for you guys, what what are some of these things that um, you pay special attention to? I mean, previously you talked about creating a sense of community, which I'm sure is very a very big thing for Gen Zs, right? But what are some other things that you guys focus on? I mean, for sure, the design, right? The magazine looks, uh, the magazine looks beautiful. Mm. Uh, shout out Melody, who's uh, our head designer. And yeah, Melody, our head designer, makes our branding really like dainty. I mean, that, that's the so first like, thing. Like, it has to pop, right? So people want to read it. And then you have to like lure them in with the, the pictures. Mm, I think like our language and tone of voice. And on social media, when we post stories, we try to be like the face of the store press. So we like talking about what we eat as the team and like what we have been cooking at home. And then sometimes we get a lot of DMs saying like, wow, my grandmother would flip if she saw how you make like the spring onion pancake. Like, why are you making it this way? It's like in a casual manner. They're not like trying to say like, why are you cooking like this? Like, this is wrong. But it's more of like bantering with us. Like, why do you choose to cook this? It's not even like, it's not even like a Singaporean food, I don't know. Sometimes like we make like tacos for fun and stuff like that. And like, I guess that starts the conversation, even if it's not like entirely pleasant sometimes, right? But we wanted to bring out like the most organic side of us. Like we are also learning together with you. And because we don't come from like an expert standpoint, like that stress is like completely eliminated. So when we try to do stuff, we want to do stuff that we enjoy and that you enjoy as well. Like we haven't really went to the web market as a team. We only went like once with like Tahira from Spicy Kitchen, right? And that was super eye-opening for us. It was my first time at Gilang Sarai Market and I saw her put like all the vegetables in like a big basket and the guy only charged us like 150 and gave us so much like free curry leaves and like free calamansi and stuff like that and we were just mind blown by like the fast pace of life in the market you know like us just, like <laughs> standing behind like taking the instagram fast stories and then she's really like done paying the guy and like yeah so i think it's a lot of like sharing our experiences because all these small things amuse us so much i think like maybe it's because i haven't really been exposed to so much of like heritage food or like singaporean cooking until I started a slow press, but I guess a little bit more experience with that. Like he uses a pesto and mortar at home and like makes up of glass. Please stop, please stop doing this. It's not that special. It's just a pesto and mortar. You know, but and we, also, we also broke one, uh, we broke one on our Instagram story because it's the kind they use for grinding, right? And then we, we tried to like make pesto with it and then we broke it. Oh God. Yeah, no, I think when people, 
it's like when you watch other young people cook, right? It's like less intimidating also. And we're also learning like what Christy yeah. said. Yeah, mm. I love what you guys are saying because I feel that whether you're a young person or older person like me, right? Like that fear is always there because you're putting your work out there. And I think I mentioned this in my interview with, with you guys for, for the Slow Press, right? Where, you know, through this journey of running Singapore Noodles, there have been people who are like, oh, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And I feel that it, like this gatekeeping is really creating a lot of fear in younger Singaporeans to even want to try, you know what I mean? It's like if if they were actually to put something out there and people were to criticize it, then, you know, how would they find any impetus or motivation or even desire or courage to step forward and say, okay, this is my humble attempt at making this dish. You guys are writing a lot about heritage food. I mean, have you guys ever felt or experienced that kind of um, fear before putting out a recipe or putting out um, content? Because, I mean, you guys talked about how you are not in the F&B space, right? So you guys are kind of like observers or the middlemen. So in that sense, without that sense of authority, how do you find the confidence and the courage to put forward such stories? Uh, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And there's there's always definitely a fear, right? It's like, oh shit, uh, am I getting it right? Am I showing the whole picture? So for me, at least uh, personally, I feel what's important is to First of all, center the voices of people that know the stuff. You know what I mean? R- rather than trying to like talk over them, they are they are the story. You know what I mean? So I try to like let them speak for themselves, and then of course like do your do your due due diligence. You know, uh, talk to people, do do your own research, and so that you don't you don't come off like uh, just trying to like get everything from this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's like my approach to it in terms of what I do to try and mitigate that fear of like getting it wrong. Yeah. I think it's always about like not looking at a community or a certain food as something that is like novel or unique to that culture because you might come across as like, oh, why didn't you research this before? Like people will be quite turned off if like you go for an interview or you go to somebody's house and watch them cook, but then you don't even know what like the, the, the primary like, fundamentals to like what is a rampa or like what what kind of chili they use in this kind of cuisine like if you go in knowing nothing like the, the people will confirm judge you and like they, they will just feel very distasteful like oh, why don't you respect my culture right like you shouldn't see another person's like you shouldn't want to cover something because it's like uh trendy or, or like or like it gets clicks or whatever you know mm-hmm. yeah. i love that I, I mean that's such a good point and I've seen so much growth in the slow press from your very first issue until, you know, your fourth volume right now. In terms of the scope, in terms of the kind of stories that you guys are featuring. So, I mean, um, how, how, I mean, reflecting on the past year or so, how do you think the slow press has changed and what are your hopes for it in the future? Hmm, slow press has obviously changed quite a bit when we started. I think we are very happy with where we are at now. On the start, we were quite lost because there's so much to talk about and we are not very sure like who should we talk to and like whether they would give us the due support and respect. We got a few rejections from people who aren't even like very old in the industry. Like they're also just starting out, but they're like, why do I need coverage from like such a small media? What do I get? They actually say such things to you guys like so honestly. Yes, 
listen it to us like when we are <laughs> working on the second volume and we are like all right maybe we just don't touch them like it's, it's okay like that there will be people who believe in us and that we believe in and i guess that has been the spirit that has been encouraging us all along so i think for volume three and volume four we tried to do a lot more in terms of content and the length and depth of stories and what we wanted to cover i think we did pretty long interviews that i helmed for both of the volumes yeah, and we also tried to do more of like cultural pieces and bring in a lot more recipes for volume four. So I think like how the slow press has grown, mm, don't really want to compare in terms of like numbers or like how many contributors we have, but I feel like we are slowly refining how we look at food, even in terms of like our designers and our photographers. Sometimes it's like their first time doing like a food related shoot or their first time like eating something from a private dining kitchen. and. It's very eye-opening for them, and I'm so glad that I get to bring them on these adventures. I don't want it to be about me, because I'm the person contacting the guy, right? Maybe the guy's like friends of friends, and like, I don't want it to be just me experiencing it. I want members of my team to be able to be there and feel for the food. So I think that's something that we want to continue doing this year. So we want to actively involve the designers and the photographers and videographers more, so that all of us can go down, all of us can talk to the person and like feel the atmosphere for ourselves. Because I think it's, it can be done very remotely. Like, you know, I just finish my piece and I pass it on to the designer who just has to read it and like try to like fit in something. But the person doesn't really know what I'm going through or like how the food even tastes like, right? I don't even think like the designers bother to like, I mean, they don't have to, uh, they can do whatever they want and they feel comfortable with. But like maybe if I'm talking about family recipe, I feel I feel bad that I didn't like make her the Hyang and like pass it to her that kind of thing, right? Like I feel like we just want to share all these experiences and continue sharing them with not just our team but starting from our team, then to everyone else. Yeah, and uh, yeah. we're definitely trying to move towards more of longer, more involved. Uh, I guess like a bit more research heavy pieces. Yeah, so I think that's what we want to feature more of mm-hmm. in the future. Are you guys hopeful for the future of Singaporean food and that more young Singaporeans would actually start not just being consumers, but actually start cooking? Because I mean, it's very easy for someone to just go to a restaurant and eat local food or heritage food and say that you're supporting Singaporean food culture. But it's another thing to be intimately aware of the processes involved and curious about wanting to try these Mm. things at home. I think that's, I actually think uh, that there's been a bit too much focus on consuming as a way of uh, interacting with food culture, right? So it's like, oh, you have to eat local food. You have to like hashtag support hawkers or whatever. Of course, that's important, of course, right? But yeah, it's, it's, it's so important if food culture is to like survive and thrive that we have a lot of people involved in the making of the food. They are more, they're, they're, you know, they know, they know more about the food. They're like, I don't know, educated. Is that, is that a good word? Something like that. But uh, returning to the question, I actually don't, I'm actually not very hopeful. <laughs> just because, uh, oh, just because, you know, obviously a lot of wonderful efforts by everybody to preserve food culture. And I think that it will remain definitely in some way by those who like so-called carry the torch, right? But I, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's like the times where, you know, working, uh, working hours are very long. People, people are always like, you know, working like nine to six, uh, working overtime, long working hours, and not really not enough energy to invest in 
cooking or home cooking. And I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of things that uh, lead me to think this way, right? Uh, yeah, even like, you know, domestic helpers, where we have a huge portion of Singaporeans, Singaporean families are very reliant on domestic help because you have like dual income households. You have uh, people that are working. Basically, they're both, you know, both, they're both working. Uh, nobody, there's not enough time for people to cook. That's why they have to like rely on domestic help a lot, a lot of the times. And if they don't have the time to do that, then it's very hard for me to see a Singapore where there are a lot of people, a significant portion of people that are home cooking, that are making their own food, that are intimately connected to their food in a way that is, that generally gives me hope for the, I guess, the future of food culture. Yeah. I feel like it's more of the circumstances rather than the, yeah. I'm honestly quite worried because I cannot imagine how hawker centers will be like maybe 10 years <laughs> down the road. People are like aging, the uncle can't fry his Hokkien Mee anymore. Then where am I going to eat my Hokkien Mee, right? Other than like learning and cooking at home. But the experience will still be very different. Because now I just started like normal working hours and it's very easy for me to just walk over to Golden Mile and get everything I want. I can eat there for like 10 days. I'll never be sick of it because there's like so many different stalls and so many different foods there, right? But can you imagine that now, even now, we are like outsourcing a lot of our help to like foreign sources, I guess. Maybe like Malaysians or like Chinese people who come and like be hawkers, right? And like... How much of our local involvement like remains in these like anyone can take a recipe from someone and like cook the same thing in the same way and sell it but do they actually feel a connection to the dish and what's the difference because some there's this like food center near my house shampoo market right and it's like market you just say shampoo market yeah shampoo market oh that's the market closest to my house oh my gosh i go there like once a week I used to grow up at Lakeview. Wow, Christy. Wow, you should come back. Yeah. <laughs> we can go to the market together. But anyway, there's like mm. three prawn noodle shops, stalls at Shunfu Market, and they're all like almost side by side and selling everything at the same price. So it always puzzles me like, why would somebody choose this stall over another stall? And then nearby another coffee shop, there's also like one or two prawn noodle stalls, right? But what sets all these stalls apart? Mm. Are they just trying to sell something to make a living out of it? Like, I feel like there's not much thought. I mean, there doesn't need to be much thought lah, because like hawker centers aren't really like curated food places, you know. Somebody can just buy a license and just open a stall. But I think that changes a lot of like how we see food and how we want to consume it. Because like for somebody who's just like walking into the hawker center, they'll just go for anything with the longest queue. It doesn't mean like the food of the other hawkers is not up to standard or like I feel a bit sad sometimes when like you see the disparity in terms of like queue numbers and people just like go for that as an easy way or like they just search up on like food blogs right like top 10 stalls to eat at this market and people usually patronize those stalls a lot more but it doesn't mean that the other stalls shouldn't be spotlighted or shouldn't be patronized because I'm sure that they do good stuff, that's why they are still there and still surviving. So I don't, yeah, I don't want to be discouraged, but I am quite discouraged by how it's going to look like in the future when they eventually have to retire. Thank you. Actually, I, I feel that every time I go back to Singapore, so much is changing, more stalls are closing down, especially with COVID, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I am not very optimistic for, you know, like what you said, the future of hawker food and also home cooking because 
I feel that there's so much going against it, you know. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, you know, just to remain hopeful, how do you think, you know, people like you who are potential future change makers in Singapore um, and people like myself can actually make a difference? Because, I mean, people have been talking about the need to preserve heritage food for the longest time. People have been championing hawker, hawker food culture, you know, and, and, you know, with UNESCO coming in and things like that. But uh, from your perspective, what do you think has been lacking in these conversations or what has been lacking in our approach to promoting heritage food? Um, and how can we kind of revitalize the conversation again? I think it's still like too much of like talking about it, but not actually doing it and making sure people see that you are doing it. I think it takes a lot of conscious efforts to like take the first step among your friends. Like what I said about like Sunday brunch and stuff. Sometimes if my friends like suggest, oh, let's go eat like from like the same plain restaurant again. And then I'll be like, why don't we eat the hawker center nearby? I think it's a lot about getting exposed to these sources and varieties of food that we still lack. And even if people talk about it, you know, like National Heritage Board or like Singapore Food Festival, there was this period of time where they do like the uh, hawker culture hashtag thing again. And then when they talk about it, it's like, okay, well, we should check out this hawker center for Chakritel and it's famous. And everyone will just like center their attention to there for a period of time. And after like that campaign kind of like finishes up, uh, then people don't really care about it anymore. I'm sure like people do think about it a bit more when like, I guess government bodies or like cultural institutions mention these things, right? And like, I know people have been doing like heritage research, like Sarah Benjamin Town has been doing hawker center research as well, and she's also a young person. But how much of whatever she does gets across to the mass audience, I'm not very sure. But I feel I still feel like it's very, very important and it's very interesting, like whatever she's doing for hawker. So I hope that that comes through a bit more in the next few years. And I guess for us as our generation, yeah, we, we can just try to do our part. And like, because we are the minority, I know it's hard and it always starts somewhere. Lah. I'm sure like the slow press will try to get more people like food from our local culture. Like we are trying to, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, I feel like actually documentation is very important, especially uh, in ways that are accessible to young people. Uh, as, a, as a young person myself, who is shamefully not very uh, proficient in my mother tongue, for example, Mandarin, right? There are, there are a lot of sources, a lot of valuable sources where it's like, you know, maybe 20 years after, if, if in the case where any like particular food or thing disappears, you can still look back at like sources and then recreate it. That's what a lot of people are doing now, right? Like whatever Christopher Tan is doing with the Kuei stuff. It's, that's, that's why he's doing like uh, reaching back, looking at all these documented sources. I feel like there needs to be a lot more documentation of stories of the food, the recipes in it. Okay. In English, because it's the most accessible for um, a lot of young people, right? Like myself. So that's that's one thing I feel that we should be doing. And yeah, just documentation in general. Because that's what's important when, even if, yeah, like maybe 30 years down the line, when something is forgotten, that's how you potentially bring it back. If only if someone has taken the time and the, and the love and the care to write it down, to, to preserve it, right? Then we can uh, potentially bring it back protect it even if it goes out of uh, style or whatever. Mm. I feel like that's important. Uh. Oh, I have yeah. something to add. So I think like 
through my interviewing experience, even in school and for school press, I feel like sometimes when we talk to like older hawkers or like business owners, they might be quite unwilling to like share about what they do. Sometimes they will just dismiss it as like, oh, uh, I do this every day and like no- nothing new. Not- it's just like normal going to work. I come here, fry some noodles and go home. Like they'll literally tell me that. And then it's like, I'm sure there's a story, but I couldn't like seem to dig it out of them and like it, and that leads me to think like are those profiles being featured on like mainstream media or like other outlets like our grandfather story right like are those profiles that are willing to be videoed like only the profiles that will live on because it's like yeah it's also about the access between like the newsmaker and the journalist right if they don't want to share the story then the story just like fades away and we never get to hear of it at all so then we realized like a lot of the same people are being profiled, like the same heritage businesses. It feels a bit unfair to me. Like, yeah, we we just can't have the best of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that as well. You know, in my work with Singapore Noodles and with Wet Market Table, I mean, some people are just very open and very generous with their stories, mm-hmm. right? Wear their heart on the sleeve, very expressive, very good with words. Um, but some people are just more private and more shy and like less media trained. No, I, I, that is one of the biggest struggles for me, especially with running the podcast, right? Where you really require your subject to be expressive, you know? Um, it, it's like the hardest thing when you ask your question and the profile just says like just one line. Yes, I love food. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Christy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's like very hard to unearth those stories. But for sure, I mean, what you're saying is very, very true. Then we lose another side of the perspective, right? Like so many different stories that are lost because of this. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. It's been really illuminating and really great to listen to the perspective of young people like you. And um, I mean, definitely it's given me more inspiration to to continue the work that I'm doing. And I'm very happy that you guys actually got impacted by the work that I did, whether it's Wet Market to Table or Singapore Noodles, at least in like a small way. I'm very excited to see how the slow press will continue to grow and expand. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode. You have been listening to Christy Chua and Tan Aik of The Slow Press. We now stand at the crossroads where we are witnessing the vanishing of traditional dishes and the gradual erosion of our rich food culture. Now more than ever, it is so important to encourage one another to get back into the kitchen to cook. Singapore Noodles is offering a membership dedicated to equipping anyone with everything that they need to start cooking Singaporean food. Visit sgpnoodles.com to find out more. Once again, thank you for listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast where we believe in a world in which Singaporeans are proud of our rich and diverse food culture and play an active role in keeping our food heritage alive.